Hello and welcome to Hawk Talk. I'm Holly. And I'm Jonathan, and we're your hosts for the first season of Hawk Talk. Today, we are very excited to introduce our next guest, Alistair Hignall. Alistair graduated from Fitzwilliam College in 1978 with his degree and his postgraduate certificate in education. Whilst at Cambridge, Alistair was a successful member of both the rugby union and the cricket clubs, earning a total of eight blues and acting as captain of the rugby and the cricket teams during his time here. Whilst at Cambridge, he also won his county cricket cap for Gloucestershire, 10 of his 14 caps for the England rugby team and was a reserve for the 1977 British and Irish Lions. After graduating, Alistair continued to combine professional cricket, international rugby and teaching until a series of injuries prompted a change in career. He was then a broadcast journalist for nearly a quarter of a century, commentating on hundreds of matches before taking medical retirement with multiple sclerosis in 2008. Since then, he's been awarded a CBE for his services to sport and charity and the BBC TV sports personality Helen Rollison Award for courage and achievement in the face of adversity, while his autobiography was named Rugby Book of the Year in 2012. He has served as trustee of Leonard Cheshire Disability, is on the board of Brighton Hove Health Watch, and is currently a very active patron of the Sporting Memories Network. Wow, that's some list of achievements. Welcome, Alistair. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you on and uh, we can't wait to hear about what sounds like a very busy time that you had at Cambridge and all of the fantastic work that you've done since. So to start us off, uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you first started playing rugby and cricket? At school, really. Um, cricket, I, I sort of hero worship my dad. He was actually an international athlete, but when I was growing up, he played a lot of cricket for sort of second team the RAF and teams like that so he was quite a he's a very good cricketer he had one game for Gloucestershire coincidentally against Cambridge University in 1947 so he was that good and I used to go along and watch him and carry his bag and work the scoreboard and just follow my dad and he played some good stuff and I loved cricket and I loved sport and I went to a, a prep school in Staffordshire where they didn't do much else other than sport and a bit of academic work but they encouraged me to play sport it was only cricket and rugby you didn't do any other sports and I found that I was quite good at them and I was very very competitive as a young man and wanted to get in and the same at the, the senior school I went to they encouraged my sport, they encouraged my academic stuff, and things fell into place. I was lucky enough to play for England schools at cricket and rugby while still at school. Uh, and then when the chance came, yes, I wanted to go to Cambridge and was lucky enough to get in. You've just mentioned there about your application process to Cambridge. Do you remember much about that time and whether your sport, your cricket and your rugby played a part in you applying to Cambridge as well? Well, I knew that, I mean, Cambridge was a first-class venue. I mean, you played first-class rugby and you played first-class cricket. So if you had sporting ambitions, it was the place to aim for if you could get past the academic bit. The school I was at didn't send many people to Cambridge or Oxford. And so we had no idea of working out which was the best college for me. And I think that we chose Emmanuel because... There's a chap called Bob Wilkinson was playing for them. He was an England rugby player. There was a guy called Gerald Davis, who was a Welsh rugby player. He was the Emmanuel. And they, they seemed as if they were going to be accepting of sports people. But I went up for my interview at Emmanuel to read history. Uh, and 
the guy's first of all first question was which one of your two sports are you going to give up oh my god and i thought oh <laughs> on my feet what am i gonna say so i said something like well a well-disciplined and well-organized person can at least play both of the sports and his study won't suffer and i was sort of tailing away and not really getting anywhere uh, and emmanuel turned me down but at the same time fitzwilliam picked me up so i didn't have any sort of heartache of being turned down by Cambridge. I think they came in the same post. So Emmanuel's loss was Fitzwilliam's gain or my gain anyway. Uh, and so I came up to Fitzwilliam uh, just after my 19th birthday in 1974. Oh, fantastic. And that, that takes us really nicely on to your time at Cambridge, um, which as we mentioned before, was pretty jam packed, um, especially as you didn't, uh, you didn't listen to that interviewer and you didn't give up either of the sports. So, yeah, first off, could you tell us a bit about what it was like being on not one, but two first teams in your first year as a fresher? It was extraordinary. It was so much fun. I mean, but extraordinary as well. But I was really lucky that history, uh, their part ones were after two years. So the, the exams I had to take at the end of my first year was prelims. And that was really fortunate because at the end of my first term, uh, I got a blue and we beat Oxford. And then there was a, a tour to Italy, Cambridge University. Would you like to go on tour to Italy? Yes, please. And then in the Easter, there was a tour to Japan. Would you like to go on tour? Yes, please. And then whilst I was in Japan, they, I got a letter from the England selector saying, would you like to go on a tour to Australia with England in the summer? And I thought, oh, blimey, um, better find out. So I went back to Fitzwilliam and said, any chance? And they said, well, because you're not doing part ones this year, you can take your exams in October, September, just before term starts again, and you can go on this tour and see where it takes you. So I was really lucky that the timing worked for that. And in my first year, I went on tour to Italy, to Japan and Australia and got my cap and was just one of those extraordinary roller coasters. I'd always played both sports. I mean, at my school, you play rugby and then cricket. So it didn't seem any different. And I just tried to squeeze everything in and see what I could do. Uh, and Fitzwilliam were fantastic. We, we shifted my tutorials and seminars around so that if I was away on a rugby match, at least I could still be tutored by the right people. So they were incredibly accommodating and incredibly generous in fitting me in so that I didn't really miss out too much in the way of the academic work. I just stretched it out a bit uh, and came back after that international game against Australia, came straight back by some fluke. I, I turned up at the cricket ground at the time when I was having to go and ask, because I was a professional cricketer by then anyway, so I had to go and ask them for time off. And I just wanted to check in with the Cambridge captain that, you know, you're obviously not going to need me. It's only four weeks away from the varsity match. Can I go back to, to Gloucestershire? And just at that moment, somebody got injured in the Cambridge side and he said, can you play today? And yeah. So I played and I scored some runs and then I was in the sort of run up to the varsity match. So I got my blue as well. I never expected to get a cricket blue my first year, but I was just in the right place at the right time and got into the team just for the three or four weeks before, scored a few runs and got my blue at Lords as well. And then went straight back to county cricket. So it was just a marvellous fast moving wonderful time fitting everything in absolutely full of energy full of excitement and full of joy it was absolutely brilliant that sounds like the ideal first year okay so moving on from that first year you did play 
for both these teams, but you were then moving into actually sitting your part one and your part two exams. And also then you started to captain. You were captain for the rugby teams and the cricket teams at different points. Could you tell us a little bit about how your your role within the cricket and the rugby teams developed over time and your role as an individual athlete? Well, at the end of at the end of the, the first term, they were doing the elections for who's going to be the secretary and the captain for the rugby the next year. And would you want to be secretary? I said, yeah, why not? So I was secretary of the rugby in my second year uh, and played cricket. And then in the then at the end of the second year at cricket, they said, do you want to be captain next year? And I said, well, Peter Roebuck should be captain, but he didn't want to do it. So I said, I'd be captain. Uh, and then at the end of that, at the end of the third year, I was staying on to do my teaching, uh, teaching course. And they said, do you want to be captain? And I said, yeah, why not? Uh, and, and But also I was on the Blues Committee and on the Hawks Committee. And, you know, it, I, I'm just one of these people, if someone says, you know, would you want to do that? Can you help? And I, I always go, yeah, why not? So uh, I was on all those committees and, and really it, was, it gave you a chance to be right at the heart of Cambridge sport. You know, we were, we're very amateur, but the students had a really big say in how things were run and how we could do things. And it was just being part of that was just a, a lovely, wonderful experience for me. It was so much fun. And uh, as if that wasn't enough, you also played county cricket for Gloucestershire international rugby for England and you're a reserve for the Lions as well so could you tell us a bit about what it was like as a young student to play on these teams? It was extraordinary I mean it was quite interesting in a way because the first varsity match I played in was the first time I played in front of a big crowd and it was it was incredibly intense because the rugby players will tell you well everybody who plays in the varsity match will tell you that in the times leading up to it you're quite you're sort of you know, you, you've only got one chance of getting a blue, so you've got to be fit fit on that one day. So, so much hanging on it. But also, at the, the time I was playing, we used to get quite good crowds at Grange Road. The local townspeople who were rugby supporters used to come along. Blokes from the college used to come along as well. So there's always a great crowd and there was a great interest. And when the varsity match came along, hordes, thousands of students would descend on Twickenham and... Once the team was announced, you've got about 10 days to get the nerves really building up before the big game. And everywhere you went in Cambridge, there were people going, hey, good luck. You know, I see you. In the... And so the tension got quite big. And I was only 19. And oh, blimey, this is quite an important game. And then you run out at Twickenham. There's 30 odd thousand people, which is the biggest crowd you've ever played. But you sort of felt that all of them certainly the ones you'd seen during the last week and so, so keen for you to do well and for Cambridge to do well. There was really an awful, there was almost more pressure on you playing for Cambridge than there was for England. You know, I first played for England out in Australia where, you know, there were only 20 odd thousand people there. It was, you know, the Australian stadiums were considerably uh, amateur compared to what they are now. We only had 20 odd thousand people there. It was a sort of, yeah, you know, sort of cricket pitch had been had a couple of stands put around it, you know. So, so it didn't feel quite the same, and it was hot and and so on. But so you're playing for your country, and that's wow. That was you know people say, "What's your highlight?" That of course is the highlight. You play for your country, got the rose on. You think back to the efforts you put in. You think back to the efforts your teachers have put in, your coaches have put in, and all the people that support you and go, "Come on, you can do it." So that's fantastic. But in terms of 
the actual tension and pressure, the varsity matches were every bit as demanding, I think, in that, in that sense. But, you know, once I came back from Cambridge, uh, from Australia, the England selector said, you know, can you come to a trial? I went to a trial, did all right. You're playing in the first game. Stayed fit, played for four or five in that first year and sort of was in the England setup. But compared to now, the England setup was simply you turned up on a Thursday to play on a Saturday. Whereas now they're in camp. I mean, never mind the pandemic. They're in camp for sort of weeks on end. But we do, we weren't allowed to meet more than 48 hours before an international. So it fitted in really well with Cambridge life. <laughs> you know, he could work quite hard in the week and then Thursday, get the train down to London, Friday do a bit of work, bit of reading, whatever, and Saturday you're playing back on the train on the Sunday. So it really fitted in well with my, with the, the, the cricket and the rugby and Cambridge all fitted in so, so well that, you know, there were times when you were, juggling a bit but really they, they just well it's a long time ago and it felt so easy it felt as everything was fitting fitting in as long as you kept running as fast as you could you'd get there you talked a little bit there about the the balancing act that you had and actually one of the things that we really liked to talk about on this podcast is how sport doesn't have to come at the detriment of academics and that actually it's beneficial for Cambridge students to be playing sport. Now, that being said, most students here aren't also captain of two full blue sports and playing national and international sport and also being on multiple committees. So how were you able to balance all of these different commitments? Um, are you able to expand on that in a little bit more detail? I, I, mean, I was lucky enough that I was reading history rather than some of the other subjects because history is very much you turn up for lectures and then you take your own notes and you do your own reading and you prepare your own weekly essays, assignments and so on. And you have a seminar. So it was very much self-study and so on. So that that worked really well. But I just felt and I suppose because I'd done the same thing all through my life, I'd always tried to play two sports and study. And so it just seemed let's get everything in. And it's really a question of self-discipline, of working out what time you've got available what you can do in the time you've got and using every minute as well as you can. And I actually do believe very strongly, and I know there's some, some studies now that show it, that sports people, because of the self-discipline that they have to have in order to practice, train, dedicate themselves to a sport, they have the self-discipline to use their time wisely, to use their efforts. And it's been proven on a lot of there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, as well as some scientific studies now, which say that if the sportsmen have this ability to not quite multitask, but to be able to concentrate on different things and move from one to another. And I found that was possible uh, with a bit of help and support, obviously. But I found that was possible. And, and I've since I have found all through my life and since that for sports people, if they've got that discipline a self-discipline and drive they can make it work because that's what it's all about in life in work in study in sport it's self-discipline organizing yourself and never saying no oh, i can't do this always work out how you can do it i think that's uh, that's a really nice way of looking at it we discussed that a little bit in our um, previous podcast bonus episode where we we actually looked at some of the studies that you you referenced so if anyone wants to look at that in a bit more detail they should definitely go back in our catalog and have a look at that 
So if we if we move on from your time at Cambridge, which sounded fantastic. So once you graduated, you then worked as a professional cricketer, an international rugby player and a teacher for some time. So how did you find, in contrast to balancing high level sporting alongside your studies, how did you find balancing your sporting career alongside a career in teaching? Well, it was it was difficult, but I again, I was very lucky in that I was able to get a job that, that I taught for two terms and play cricket for the third term for Gloucestershire. So I, I found a school that was keen enough to have me during the rugby season. I could coach their rugby teams, obviously, uh, and could then go and play cricket. So it worked well. Uh, and I, so I was able to do that. I didn't have had any holidays because <laughs> you'd start in September teaching and you get through to December, have a week off for Christmas, and then you're through till the next September. But that was what I wanted to do, and it worked really, really well. As far as the training difference, at Cambridge, we could train in the afternoons. Quite often we trained in the afternoons. When you're working, you can't do that. So it was a question of doing your nine to five job or in teaching, it's different hours as well. And then, you know, getting on, on your bike and getting off to training at Bristol or, or get the bus to training, do your training, come home exhausted, get up first thing the next morning to go teaching again. But it was possible. It was doable if you organise yourself. And so I found that was satisfying in a way, organising myself in the way that I'd done as a student, fitting in working and earning a salary and all those sorts of things, uh, as well as playing cricket. It just, it all worked, it all fitted in. So I was just incredibly fortunate. So after that period of teaching and also playing sport, you then switched to broadcast journalism, spending nearly 25 years, mainly with BBC Radio, but also then briefly with ITV. What was it like for you switching careers into journalism? It was a big gamble. I, I love teaching. I would still do it. If somebody said, What's, which job has given you most job satisfaction? I would say teaching. I really, I wanted to be a teacher right from, from early days. Uh, and I was always planning to be a teacher. And in my fourth year at Fitzwilliam, I did the teacher's training course and I was going into teaching. I went into teaching on a part on this part time basis I told you about for, for five or six years and then did two years full time teaching um, at Sherborne in Dorset. And it, I loved the teaching part of it. But at the same time, somebody came along on the radio and said, do you want to sit, sit next to me whilst I do the commentary? you know, just give us some words about the game being played. So I said, yeah, why not? So I did that. And then somebody said, well, you can could do this quite well. You've, you can talk a bit. Why don't you have a go at getting a job at the BBC in London? And I said, why not? I can always go back to teaching. And I was lucky enough to get a job. The intake of that year was very small, but we, we got in and it kept me close to sport, which I loved, kept me close to cricket and rugby. And I learned how to be a broadcaster. And that was just a different way of doing things. Not No long holidays like in teaching, but it was a different way of doing things. I thought, why not give it a go? If it all goes wrong, I can go back to teaching. Haven't gone back yet. That's fantastic. And I'm glad to hear that you had such a good time in that career as well, but also in your career in teaching. So as we discussed in the introduction, when you came to retire in 2008, that was related to your diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Could you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be diagnosed and how initially you managed working alongside this condition? Yeah, in about 1996-ish, 97, I had a hip replacement operation, result of misspent youth, 
dashing around and probably not good physio and stuff. In the years that followed, 97, 98, 99, I gradually felt that my right leg wasn't working very well and I was tripping over myself and I felt incredibly tired at times and I felt that the nerve endings were just jangling around a bit and investigated lots of different things and eventually they said you might ha- you might have multiple sclerosis come in for a check so I went in and had a lumbar puncture and a scan and all that sort of thing MRI scan and in 1999 January the 8th they said, you've got multiple sclerosis. It's incurable. We don't know any cause for it. You, you can treat the symptoms, but you can't cure it. And that was a huge, huge shock. I mean, you've heard I, w- I was a fit person. My dad was an athlete. All my family were fit and healthy and long living. And you're suddenly told you've got an incurable condition. It was a real kick in the solar plexus. And I felt absolutely bereft for a good period of time. Because the, the perils of Google, if you Google multiple sclerosis, you get all the horror stories of people who end up in wheelchairs and are bedridden and they die. And then, uh, it was just such a horrible experience doing that. And then gradually coming to terms with it and understanding a bit more and doing more reading, more research and meeting some fantastic people in the MS world that gradually made me say, well, how can I live with it? I can't cure it I can't end it but I can live with it so I and I love my job so I really wanted to see how I could live with multiple sclerosis however much it limited my mobility my concentration my tiredness I just wanted to see if I could do it and the BBC were fairly accommodating to me they understood and my colleagues in the rugby world were brilliant so they helped and if I needed a door opening or bag to be carried they would help so it all worked that I could carry on doing it for as long as I was diagnosed in 99, finished in 2008, and was able to do it with all this support and friendship and, and help. And so I was able to do a couple of World Cups extra, do a, lion, a couple of Lions Tours extra that I might have been able to do, and then chose when to go. After the 2007 World Cup, I realised that I probably wouldn't be able to do another big event like a World Cup or a Lions Tour because they are so intense and the BBC were great in saying okay draw a line at the end of it you can have this season you know, do a sort of farewell tour this season uh, and leave it at the end of the season and that worked very well it was hard to say goodbye to your career your job your prospects all that sort of thing it's hard to say goodbye to the grounds that you'd played in and commentated on but it, it, it was something that I wanted to do, and it did something for me to to have this graded farewell that I was in charge of it. So I chose to go in 2008, you know, from there on have written my book and got involved in charities where I can. Thank you for sharing that with us, Alistair. It's nice to hear that you did have some choice in, in your retirement. Since then, you have been more involved with the charity sphere and getting more active in your charity work. Could you tell us a little bit about the charities that you've been involved with and what your work has involved? To start off with, um, I joined the MS Resource Centre, which is now called MS UK. And, And my reasoning for that was that as I retired and I announced my retirement, 
there was some enormous generosity and friendship and support from the sporting community in general, the world of rugby in particular, but people were incredibly supportive and generous to me. And I felt, well, if there's anything I can do that would to help other people with MS who maybe don't have as many, not as high profile or whatever you could say. So I thought I would do that. And I got involved as a patron in MS UK to start off with uh, and enjoyed enjoyed that. And then this the chance of being on the board of Leonard Cheshire Disability, which is a vast international charity with hundreds and hundreds of, of outlets. And, and I thought I could learn about being in a charity and I could learn about how to use whatever I've got to help that. And that was satisfying. The six years was up. And I thought, well, why not get involved in something else? And Healthwatch Brighton came along and I was able to bring some of the things I'd learned from Landed Cheshire to that job. Uh, and more recently, Sporting Memories has come along, which is a charity that's designed to help people who are living with dementia, depression and loneliness by using the power of sport to trigger conversations, to trigger other memories. And by doing that, to trigger confidence in people. And it's just the most wonderful charity and fits so much in with, with everything I believe in and everything I'm four. Thank, thank you very much for telling us about that. It sounds like an absolutely incredible initiative. So just to bring us full circle, well, you've also kept in quite good contact with the Blues teams of your time at Cambridge, with the Man of the Match award at the annual Men's Rugby Varsity match being named the Alistair Hignall Medal in your honour. Could you tell us a bit about your continued involvement with the rugby club, the cricket club, and obviously with the Hawks and Ospreys clubs? Well, I, I'm a member of the Hawks club. Um, I keep in touch with all my old mates from the cricket. We, we have an annual get together of the, the bunch of 77 or 78. We meet somewhere and try and have, you know, attend a cricket match somewhere. We've tried to line it up for the varsity match, the game at Lords or whatever. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that's our ambition from now on is to keep on with that. There's a, a Quidnunks dinner every five years, which is great to pick up with all the other cricketers. It's a great trip down memory lane. And I'm so lucky that initially... The varsity match, when I, when I was, I think I was working with the MS charity, they said, we will do a collection for you at the varsity match. And then one of the guys said, well, we can have the Alistair Eagle medal, the man of the match. And so the charities I've been involved in have been absorbed into the varsity match special. So first of all, it was the MSRC. Then it was Leonard Cheshire. And I think it still is Leonard Cheshire. In fact, it is still Leonard Cheshire. So I'll be going along to the varsity rugby match when it happens uh, with my Leonard Cheshire hat on and to hand over the medal to, to whoever wins Man of the Match. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Hawk Talk, Alistair. This has been such a fantastic talk about your experiences um, all the way from starting sports to now. And we're really looking forward to sharing this episode with our, with our listeners. And Alistair, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your career and your experiences, where would be the best place for them to look? Well, I think I've still got, I don't, haven't done much to it, but there is a website which says alistairhignall.com, I think. And I'm, obviously my book, uh, my autobiography was called Higgy Matches Microphones and MS. Uh, I'll put the link to your website in the show notes below. Thank you again, Alistair, for coming on Hawk Talk. No problems. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Hawk Talk. Please do subscribe so that you're the first to hear about any new episodes. And if you're enjoying them, please think about leaving us a five-star rating and a review so that we can reach as many people as possible. 
Also check out our Instagrams at Horts Club Cambridge and at Ospreys Cambridge to see more about life as a light blue athlete.